Okay, today we're looking at James chapter 5. James. We're almost to the end here. We're going through verse 11 today. And this, most likely, Lord willing, will be our second to last message for this uh, epistle. James chapter 5. Okay. Well, before we go to James 5, let's review a little bit last week so we can get our train of thought right here. We saw last week that uh, speaking evil of a brother is slander. And that when you speak evil of your brother, you speak evil of the law. Because you say the law says do not slander, do not gossip. You're calling the law evil itself. And not only are you judging the law, but you're judging the lawgiver. And in a sense, you're setting up yourself as the judge and lawgiver by giving a new law. says, so, yeah, I can slander my brother if I want to. Uh, so you, there's one lawgiver and one who's able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? So it's not talking about, we talked about judging and what biblical judging is, what unbiblical judging is. Uh, and then we talked about having the right perspective on life. Knowing that each day could be our last day. Knowing that we should be living for the Lord. Not saying, not taking him out of the picture saying, I'm going to live my life the way I want to. But having him completely in the picture and saying, if the Lord wills, I will go here or there and sell and make a profit. Uh, but these people don't have him in the picture here that James is talking about. He's obviously not talking about Christians in that perspective. He's talking about non-Christians who are living ungodly. Uh, and then we talked about, finally, the fact that uh, sin is something that you have to know you're doing. You know it's wrong and you're doing it anyway. So you're, you're accountable according to your knowledge, according to your understanding. And if you have understanding and knowledge of God's word that this is wrong, this is wrong... Uh, then you'd understand that you're a sinner in God's eyes. You need to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Okay? Now we're at James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And we'll read through verse 11. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your heart as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, he does not resist you. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord... See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he, it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. And the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Okay, the first verse here. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Now, what is James talking about here? Well, many people believe this is James actually prophesying about what's going to happen, agreeing with Jesus in Matthew 24 about what he said would happen to the temple. He said, behold, this temple shall be torn down. So Jesus said in Matthew 24, let's just read Matthew 24 real quick. Just want a couple of verses from that. You can see what I'm talking about here. This is Jesus prophesying about the temple in verse 1. Matthew 24 and verse 1. 
says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Look how nice these buildings are, Lord. Look how nice they are, teacher. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was coming. And uh, what we have, this is, that's probably said around somewhere in the early 30s A.D. Now, and James wrote his epistle probably somewhere, you know, 50s, 60s A.D. Uh, we don't know exactly when. I, thought, I can't remember, I, I talked about sort of the introduction to this epistle, but I can't remember the exact date personally. Uh, but anyway, the, the point is, it hadn't happened yet. The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So if Jesus talking about A.D. 30, 31, 32, and this happening A.D. 70. Now what's really important to understand is what happened before that happened. You see, the Jews were under Roman control. That's why you have Pontius Pilate there, uh, all these Roman officials are there, because they're under Roman control. But the Jews didn't like this. So around A.D. 67, they started revolting against it. And for seven years, they were in the fortress of Jerusalem, uh, trapped there, basically, by the Romans, who had surrounded the city, and they were just going to wait it out. They tried to get in the city by knocking the walls down. They couldn't get in. It was a very strong fortress, the walls around Jerusalem. But they waited it out, and guess what happened? What happens if you have this wall around the city, and all these people are in the city? can't go in, can't go out, unless you get killed by these, these forces that are all around your city. What's going to happen eventually to the people in the city? They're gonna, why are they going to die? Well, what if they never get in? That's right. You start lacking food, lacking water, and it got so bad, you know what happened? They started cannibalizing each other. Now, what does cannibalize mean again, Sarah? Eating another. another person, that's right. So it got so bad, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that, that mothers would eat their children because they had no food, no water. And we think, most people think this is what James is talking about here. He's prophesying about what's going to happen. Uh, you reap which and reap you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. It's coming in the future. And these horrible things happened. Then when they finally did break down, they break into the city, uh, many of them were crucified. Many of them were burned alive. This is, some, this is some t a terrible way to die. In fact, they were crucifying so many people, according to the historians, they ran out of wood to crucify people. That's how bad it was. So there was starvation, there was cannibalization, there's cruci uh, crucifying people, being burned to death. Uh, these things are happening. But, you know, even beyond that, uh, let's turn again. We look, read this verse so, not too long ago, Matthew 6. I think a few sermons back when we talked about riches. We read, read about this. But worse than physical, temporal punishment, like starvation, being crucified, burning to death, cannibalization, worse than that, Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For your treasures, there your heart will be also. So, uh, if someone's heart is on earth, on earthly things, 
and they die in that state, what's going to happen to them in the end? Something worse than temporal fire. Something worse than being crucified. Something worse than cannibalization or starving to death. They'll burn in hell forever. And uh, James is trying to give these rich, ungodly people the right money to weep and howl. They need to reject their worldly riches. Uh, what did Jesus say to the young rich ruler who came to him and said, I've obeyed all these commandments, Jesus. What did he say to him next? And remember? He said, I've done all these things since my youth to Jesus. He was, Jesus went through the ten, a little bit of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus said to him, well, go and sell everything you have and then come follow me. And how did the young rich ruler respond to that? He was sad. He walked away with his head downcast, the Bible says. Because he loved his riches too much, obviously. He wasn't willing to give them up for Jesus. But what he should do, people, should, people who are rich and they're focused on the earthly thing, they should weep and howl for the misery that will come upon them if they don't, if they don't repent. They don't repent of their ungodly greed. It says, uh, let, me, let me just give you this analogy and ask you some questions and we can kind of put it in perspective here. Let's just say there's someone in the desert. Okay, they're in the desert, this vast wasteland of desert. All right? And they're just dying of thirst. The sun is just beaming down on them. And you come to this person in a desert. And you offer them three things. First thing you offer them is a, a million dollars. Okay? Second thing you offer them is uh, the original Mona Lisa painting. Okay? And the third thing you offer them is a gallon of fresh water. Ice water. Okay? You offer them these three things. A million dollars. The Mona Lisa painting, the original, which is worth a lot of money, probably worth more than a million dollars, okay? And then a gallon of fresh, cold, purified water. Which one is this person going to take? The water. water. So you put it in perspective. And you're thinking eternally in perspective of what's going to happen in the afterlife. Uh, you're offered three things again. You're offered money, okay? This time you're offered power. So I'll just draw a little arm here. Offered power and you're offered the living water of eternal life. Which one are you going to pick? That's what you should pick. Unfortunately, the living water has a lot of bad things can happen to you here on earth for a short period of time. The world's going to hate you. have to give up sin and the pleasure of sin. Okay? But these things offer you these short-term, oh, money, 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 all the things you want in the world, power, 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 everyone's going to listen to you and obey you and do whatever you tell them to do. These offer you these pleasures for a short period of time. But this, for eternity, you'll be in joy in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we put things in perspective here. Let me give you another analogy. Now, I was in the military. I never jumped out of a plane before. I wanted to when I first got in. They wouldn't let me. Uh, but let's just say you got this guy who's... There's an airplane. And uh, this airplane is going down. Okay? Airplane's going down. And you go throughout the, the uh, cockpit here. And you have all these people. And you're offering three things again. You're offering them money. Once again, 
Uh, you offer them, uh, let's say you offer them fame. Fame. Everyone will know you'd be real popular, and along with that will probably eventually come money. Or you offer them a parachute. A parachute. Plane's going down. Which one are they going to take? Parachute. That's right. So you've got to have the right perspective on life. You have to think things, think things in light of eternity, not in light of this temporal world, because the Bible says Christians are aliens and strangers in the world. We're passing through this world. There's not a resting place. Our resting place is not this house or that house next door or anywhere else in this world. Our resting place is in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes there to prepare a place for us. So we must uh, think through this life in perspective. Verse 2, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Eat your flesh like fire. Now, can, can corroded silver and, and gold really eat your flesh like fire? No, but what's he, what do you think he's talking about here? Because they're focusing so much on their gold and their silver and their riches. What do you think uh, James is talking about here? What's, what's going to really eat them up like fire in the end? Hell. So he's saying, listen, you, you keep your focus on these riches, which are, have corrupted you. Your garments, they, they, they like to have these nice clothes, these nice stylish clothes and garments. Uh, and, but those garments and those clothes aren't really going to kill them, aren't really going to eat them up like fire. But because their mind is focused on those things, and they're living a sinful, wicked life in light of those things, now it will end up them being eaten up like fire in the end. Says, and this is the reason why you've heaped up your treasure in the last days. Let's turn to Luke 12. Luke 12, and we'll turn to uh, verse 15. Actually, why don't we start in verse 13 so you can get the context here? So you understand what I'm talking about. Then one from the crowd said to Jesus, said to him, Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's talking about money here. Worried about his money from his father when his father dies. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, Hmm, what shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, these people that James is referring to in verse 3, in the end of verse 3, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. Sounds pretty familiar to that passage we just read in Matthew, huh? Or in Luke. This, that person heaped up treasures for many days. Does God give us treasures to heap them up? Does Put them in a store barn to heap them up. Now, if you, have, if you have cattle to feed, obviously you should be wise and put hay in a barn for them so they last the winter. That's just wisdom. 
Have you saying, eh, you know, this, hey, I don't have any cattle. I'm just going to sit over here and just store it up for many years. And you have no plans for it. Or the riches, you know, God may bless you monetary, you know, with money. And, and you may have all this money. You say, well, I'm going to let it sit in a bank account somewhere. Just sit there. So later on in life, when I retire at 70 years old, I can just sit around and play chess all day and play checkers all day and drink my sweet tea and eat some pie and, and sit in the front porch and watch people drive by. Is that what the Bible says about... No, you're supposed to live for the Lord Jesus to the end of your life. There's no retirement. You retire when you're dead. You have plenty of time for retirement when you're dead. So God is... And I have, I have one story I'll share with you. is uh, Mark Cahill, who, Cahill, who's an evangelist, he used to have a, something called a 401k. It's a fancy word for a retirement plan. He was saving up money so, so when he can retire. And one day God convicted him of, him of it. And he took it out of retirement and gave it all away. Now, I don't know how much it was, but it's probably a good amount. Uh, he's in his, I believe, mid-40s now. And he did this probably after saving for at least 10 years. So he took all the money and just gave it away. And uh, people might think he's crazy. But no, better to give it away for the, uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his work than let it sit in the storehouse for no good. For we're not to heap up treasures for ourselves in the last days. This also reminds you of Matthew 25, the parable of talents. The first guy was given five. That guy was given two. Next was given one. What did the five do? Remember? He made more. He made five more. Next, next two did what? Made two more. And then the last one did what? He buried it. So is everyone who buries what God gives them, uh, you know, for a rainy day, they'll bury what God gives them and not do anything with it. And this, this is the, the final part of that parable. And cast the unprofitable servant in outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking there. So, those who... Don't use what God's given them properly. It'll be taken from them and given to who? Someone else. Who did he give that one talent to? He gave it to one of the other ones who used their talents properly. And it don't mean talent like as in skill. It means talent as in money there. That's, that's the name of a money. Just like saying dollar bill. But they took their money, they took the money from him and gave it to someone else who was going to do properly with it. Use it for the Lord Jesus Christ. Use it for God's kingdom. And it says in verse 4, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the, reacher, the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. All right, these laborers. Now, recently you had a house, a little room done over here by the, the Windry men, and you've had them do other work before. Uh, what would you think, or what do you think they would think if your dad said, well, I'll pay you this when you're done, and then he didn't pay them. You think they would like that? You think they'd come back and work for him again? You think they'd be crying out, justice, justice, I want my money, I deserve my, the, the wages for my labor? Of course. There's an old uh, rabbinical saying, it goes something like this, that when the worker's out in the field working, his sweat literally, because, you know, God cursed Adam, he said, Adam, now you will eat by the sweat of your brow. He said that their sweat cries out to God for the wages of their labor. Now, that's not biblical, but it's a nice little saying because they do their work, they're required to get paid for their labor. Now, let's turn to the Old Testament here, Leviticus, chapter 19. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Bible. 
And we can see what the Jewish law says about this, and this is probably what James is referring to because he's speaking to Jews. Leviticus 19 and verse 13 says this. You shall, now, you shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. So there's this principle in, in Levitical law, Jewish law, that you pay the person each day. When a day was up, you paid. You didn't pay him once a week. You didn't pay him once a month. You paid him each day at the end of the day. Turn to Deuteronomy. Chapter 24, just a few books over. From Leviticus. 24. And verse 14. It says this. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor or needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages, and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. Sounds familiar. Sounds like exactly what James is talking about here. And these rich, they weren't just using the riches they had wrongly. But the way they acquired their riches was ungodly. So they acquired their riches in an ungodly way by cheating their servants, cheating their workers, and then they used their riches for ungodly things, to just store it up. So you have all this money in a bank account somewhere, and you could pay. You, I mean, it's not like you, you can't afford to pay the worker. Like you just don't have money. You're just keeping it sitting in a bank account somewhere and not paying them. That's an ungodly thing to do. And it says that have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. And the Sabbath is Lord of hosts, or Lord of a head of a great army. A very powerful, great army. And I think what James is trying to convey here is now you've made yourself an enemy of God. God's going to fight against you with his great army. May not be now, but at some point in time, he will fight against you with his great army and you will lose. You think by strong riches you're going to help yourself? You think you have all the power in the world because you have this money in your bank account? No. The Lord of hosts will come against you. He's against you now because you're not being just to the people who are working for you. And the money you do uh, get in an unjust way, you're using for wickedness. And it says you have lived on earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your heart as in a day of slaughter. day of slaughter is referring to uh, when they brought sacrifices to the priest. And had sacrificed all these animals on one day, sacrificed them all, and you got blood flowing. And, but they had those big feasts too. But a sacrifice wasn't, the day of sacrifice wasn't meant to be a, a party time. Yeah, you can eat from it. But it's not meant to be a feast. It's meant to be a day of brokenness over your sin. Because those lambs' blood, these, these animals' blood have to be shed because of your sin. And so is the same with riches. God doesn't give riches so you can use it for your own pleasure, for your own wickedness, for luxury, for fattening your hearts. It's to be used to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's a very important passage when, in reference to these false teachers out there who say that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and He wants you to be rich. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. What's contentment, children? 
happy with what you have. That's perfect. Happy with what you have. Not always desiring and wanting more and coveting and lusting after things. You're happy with what you have. So godliness, not just contentment by itself, not just godliness by itself, but godliness with contentment is great gain. If we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. We can't carry any of these worldly possessions with us. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. So what's the two things you should be content with? Food and clothing. So even if you didn't have shelter, you should be content. Even if you don't have a car, you should be content. Even if you don't have a husband or wife, you should be content. All these things are add-ons. They're not necessities. Not things you have to have. Even if you don't have a computer, you should be content. Even if you don't have a TV or DVDs or, or CDs or, or stereo to listen to music, you should be content. Because food and clothing are necessary. But all those other things are not necessary. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and to many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. It's going to kill them. It's going to kill them. That's what drowning does. It kills you. For a love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some, having strayed from the faith, oh, they left the faith, wow, strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Instead of drowning themselves, they're piercing themselves because of their wickedness. But here's the exhortation. But you, O man of God, you, O woman of God, flee these things and pursue this. Not riches. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life. Grab onto it. Don't let go of it. To which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's what a Christian life is like. Laying hold of eternal life. Not laying hold of riches which are going to fade away. You can't take them with you. Moth and rust will destroy those things. Verse 6. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Man, they murdered a lot of people, the Jews. Let's, uh, let me just, this is not about the Jews, but I'm going to read to you some stories here. This is a book called Jesus Freaks. It's a book full of people who died for Jesus Christ. Now I just will read to you a couple of them real quick. This is probably one of my favorite ones here. Let's see if I can get to it. It's uh, Bartholomew. Bartholomew is one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. Armenia, A.D. 70. You're unset. This is the, uh, the king of Armenia talking here to Bartholomew. You are unsettling the worship of our gods. Not only that, you have perverted my own brother. But Bartholomew did not back down. One of the original twelve disciples, he had boldly preached Jesus Christ for 37 years. Starting in the heathen cities throughout what is now called Turkey, he then traveled to India. Here, after he learned the language, he translated the Gospel of Matthew and taught the Indians in their native tongue. Later, he preached in 12 different cities in the country of Armenia, which is located between present-day countries of Turkey and Iran. Many people turned from idolatry to worship Jesus, including the king of Armenia's brother and his family. Bartholomew boldly answered the king, saying, I have preached the true worship of God throughout your country. 
I have not perverted your brother and his family, but rather have converted them to the truth. The king threatened Bartholomew, unless you stop preaching Christ and make sacrifices to the God of Ashtaroth, you'll be put to death. Ashtaroth was their, their idol, their god. You can be sure of this, king, I will never sacrifice to your idol. I would rather seal my testimony with my own blood than do the smallest act against my faith or conscience. Upon hearing this, the king ordered, I want this man suffer, to suffer severe torture. First beat him with rods. After that, suspend him upside down on a cross and skin him alive. Following the king's commands, Bartholomew was beaten, crucified, and flayed or skinned alive. Despite all this, he was still conscious and continued to exhort the people who were passing by to believe in Jesus and worship the true God. Finally, to prevent him from saying anything else, they couldn't shut him up. The king took an axe and cut off his head. Soon after being beaten and skinned alive and crucified, he couldn't shut the soldier of God up. He couldn't shut him up. He was going to preach for the Lord Jesus Christ until the very end. As long as he had breath, as long as he had the ability to do so, he was going to do it. Now let's read about uh, Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. In fact, we believe he was appointed to, to be Bishop of Smyrna, the leader of the church of Smyrna, by John the Apostle himself. And you look at the book of Revelation, when, he's talking, when Jesus is talking to the seven churches, Smyrna is one of the churches that he said nothing bad about, which would be really good for, uh, for Polycarp. The kindly old bishop entered the Colosseum under armed guard. The stands were filled with an angry mob. Their shouts filled the air. Suddenly a voice from heaven spoke to the bishop saying, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Despite the noise from the crowd, many of those who stood nearby also heard the heavenly voice. Once inside the arena, the soldiers quickly brought Polycarp before the Roman proconsul. Polycarp, the well-known bishop of Smyrna, was a last living link with the twelve apostles as he had studied under John. As soon as the crowd learned that this famous bishop had been arrested, a great cheer went up. The proconsul tried to get Polycarp to deny Jesus Christ. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Take the oath and I'll release you. Curse Christ! The bishop stood firm. Eighty-six years have I served the Lord Jesus Christ. And he never once wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? I have wild beasts ready, and I will throw you to them if you do not change your mind. Let them come, for my purpose is unchangeable. If the wild beasts don't scare you, then I will burn you with fire. You threaten me with a fire which will burn for an hour, and then will go out. But you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment of God, reserved by, for the everlasting torment of the ungodly. But why do you delay? Bring on the beast, or the fire, or whatever you choose. You shall not move me to deny my Christ, my Lord and Savior. Then the leader said, Polycarp has professed himself to be a Christian. As soon as the crowds heard this, all the Jews and Gentiles furiously demanded that he be burned alive. When they were about to nail him to the stake to be burned alive, Polycarp said, Leave me as I am. He who gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me to remain still within the fire. They agreed to this and simply tied his hands on the back to a rope. In his final prayer, he prayed, O oh, Father, I thank you. They have called me to this day and hour and have counted me worthy to receive my place among the holy martyrs. Amen. As soon as he uttered the word amen, the officers lit the fire. The flames rose high above his body, but miraculously he was not burned. Those who watched said he was in the midst of the fire, not as burning flesh, 
but as gold and silver refined in a furnace. And we smell such a sweet aroma as of an incense or some sp other precious spice. Since the fire did not hurt him, the executioner was ordered to stab him with a sword. As soon as he did, so much blood flowed from the wound that it put out the fire. Reminds me of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were in the fire but were not burned. So this encourages us to continue in the faith and to uh, not, not back down no matter what may happen. We see these people who have gone before us and uh, helped us to not be afraid when these things happen. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what. Let's read in verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. So you should be long-suffering. That's what patient means. Suffer long. Suffer long. Until the coming of the Lord. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12 for a second. Now, we were talking before about how we shouldn't respond with evil a couple of messages ago, but I want to read this, this really quickly one more time. Romans 12 and verse 17. It says, uh, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if the enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, in verse 6 of James 5, it says, He does not resist you. You murder the just. You condemn them, but he does not resist you. And it says, Be patient. For the Lord is coming, and the Lord will repay each one according to his works whether of good works or of wicked works. The Lord will repay. So when someone wants to persecute you, you love them. If they curse you, you bless them. That's the way a Christian works because in doing so, first of all, it might soften their heart to the, to the message of the gospel. And secondly, it's what you're called to do. Just as the people before you have done. But it says here, it says, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting for the early and latter right now. And, and, and Jerusalem, they plant their crops... And then November is the early rain, when the crops are first planted. And in April is the latter rain, to ripen the crops that are already growing. And the farmer had to wait for both these things in order to see the fruit of his labor. So he'd go out and plow the field, plant the seed, wait for, pray and wait for the early rain. Pray and wait for the latter rain. Now, if a farmer can pray and wait for food, for crops then surely we can wait for the Lord. We can be patient and waiting for Him. Long-suffering. And we see what He went through for us. We can follow in His footsteps as well. Verse 8, You also be patient. Just as the farmers are patient, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. And the coming of the Lord is at hand. Not, James is not saying it's going to happen tomorrow. He's saying, just like we say, it could happen at any time. That's what they say all throughout the Bible. They, they assume it could happen tomorrow. And that's what we should assume. It could happen tomorrow. The Lord could come back tomorrow. If He does, we need to be prepared for Him to come back. So we need to establish our hearts. 
Let's go to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations were after Jeremiah, which were after Isaiah. It's kind of in the middle of the Old Testament. We have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. And most believe Lamentations was written by Jeremiah. Chapter 3, and verse 25. It says, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 40, a couple books back. And verse 29. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall. But to those who wait on the Lord, he shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. We need to establish our hearts before the Lord. Remember, in order for you to be finally saved, what must you do? You must persevere until the end. And persevering until the end will take a lot of strength. And if you want to have strength, you've got to wait upon the Lord, you've got to be patient, you've got to put your hope in Him and for His coming. But you need to establish yourself simply because if you don't, you will fall away. You will fall away if you don't establish your hearts. Romans chapter 12. I'm sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. After Romans. Verse 12. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But with the temptation, you will, He will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So, God is able to make you stand. He's able to find a way out of temptation, whether it be persecution or a temptation to, to lust or to covet or to lie. God is able to make a way out. We take heed lest, lest we fall. Take heed lest we fall, the Bible says. So we need to establish our hearts. Verse 9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So if we grumble, we're complaining about these things to each other, or about it, we're not being patient. Patient, long-suffering means you're... you're Staying steadfast without complaining. That's what it means to be patient. When you sit around all this, man, I really wish I didn't have to wait. You're not really being patient. So you need to be patient. You're going to endure suffering. The Bible says, he who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. But when we grumble, we become sinners. Lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What? The judge is standing at the door for what? For it, to judge the sinners. So don't grumble, friends, because God will judge them. But if you grumble, if you grumble, you'll be condemned and God will judge you too. So don't grumble about what they're doing. Just be patient. Wait upon the Lord. He'll renew your strength. 
and you won't become just like the ones who are oppressing you. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. History tells us, tradition tells us, that Isaiah the prophet was sawed in half. Sawed in half. This way. Tradition tells us that Jeremiah was stoned to death. John the Baptist, who was a prophet, had his head cut off. Jesus, the great prophet, was crucified. Stephen was stoned to death. James, who's writing this epistle, what happened to him? He was thrown down from the parapet, and then what happened? Fuller's Club beat him until he died. We read some other stories about Polycarp and about Bartholomew. People who have come before us. And you know the ironic thing is these prophets in the Old Testament, the prophets in the Old Testament were treated like false prophets. The false prophets in the Old Testament were treated like prophets. That's what you see in this day and age. People call good evil and evil good. They'll see a preacher preaching in the open air against sin, against uh, the wickedness of the land. And people will say, oh, you're doing it all wrong. Just talk about love. See, they, they love those, those false teachers who just talk about love. But they hate and despise the ones who preach the biblical truth. And that's what's happened all throughout the ages. And the people who persecuted Christians the most in the early days, it was the Jews. It was the Jews. Let's read Acts chapter 7 for a second. Acts 7. This is Stephen speaking before he was killed. He says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. It says, verse 11, Matthew 5, 11. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea and Christ Jesus. So these are the Jewish churches he's talking about here. They became, these Gentile churches became imitators of the churches in Judea of Jesus Christ. For you also suffer the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans or the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and are contrary to all men. So when we think about the prophets, we think about the suffering they went through, 
for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an example to us. That we should wait patiently, just as they did. We should not deny the Lord Jesus Christ. She said Polycarp did not deny the Lord Jesus Christ. She said Bartholomew and all the other saints of the ages have not denied the Lord Jesus Christ. I read another story earlier this morning in Jesus Freaks. talked about this lady in, uh, in communist China who was in jail for a long time. And her daughter was in there with her. Her little daughter. Because she had no husband and her daughter had nowhere to go. I think she was probably five or six years old. And she cried day and night because she didn't want to be in this jail cell any longer. So the, the guards always trying to tell this woman, just deny Christ. Have pity on your little girl. She shouldn't be in here. Just deny Christ and you can walk out of here free. So finally she decided to deny Christ. As she's leaving and she's going back home, her daughter said to her, Jesus is not pleased with you today, Mommy. And she said, well, but daughter, you were crying all that time. You cried day and night. And I, I, I was having mercy upon you. And she said, Mommy... If you will go back there today, I will never cry again. And they went back, she went back and said, I, I, I changed my mind. I don't want to deny Christ. They went back into that jail and the story tells that, that that little girl never cried again in jail with her mother. So you see that the faith of a child even will help straighten out her mother and, and be where she needs to be. It says in verse 11, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Blessed. Some people will look at the people who are persecuted and say, look, they're cursed. They're cursed by God. No, we're blessed to endure the same things they endure. Someone spits in my face, like this uh, wicked girl did in Columbus, Ohio, this past weekend. She spits in my face. I consider it a blessing, not a cursing. In the natural sense, it looks like a, a cursing, doesn't it? In fact, that's why she does it, because she wants to curse me. <laughs> spits in my face. She wants to curse me. But it's a blessing. That's what my Lord Jesus Christ went through. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now Job, the Lord allowed him to be tested by Satan. He said, yeah, consider my servant Job. And he basically let like, Satan do anything he wanted to Job for the most part, except take his life. And uh, it was hard for Job because Job knew he was a righteous man. Job knew he didn't deserve it. But look at what the end was. He had doubled what he had in the beginning. God multiplied his blessings. And we look at that in the natural sense. God, you're allowing us to go through this time of persecution and trials and tribulation and temptations. But the end is going to be the greatest part. We're not going to have just earthly riches like Job had. Heavenly riches. And above and beyond that, we don't, we don't strive to go to heaven so we can have heavenly riches. But above and beyond that, we're going to be with Jesus Christ forever, our, our, our groom, and we're his bride, the one who shed his blood for us. And that's what more than anything should motivate us to, to live for him. Okay, we're going to stop there today.